0: Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds,
1: fish nerds, it's a podcast.
2: Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. I'm Clay Grove, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, licensed fishing guide, and your best friend. This show is always interesting, usually funny. And mostly true. This will be our last show of 2020. We did it. We got through one more year of podcasting, and I think it's seven years deep now. And the fish nerds themselves are turning 10 in January. And I think we're going to re- rekindle our book project. We started it 10 years ago. Dave Kelman and I started it, and we never finished it. We may kick that book out of the uh, desert of Google Docs and put it out in the world for you guys to check out. We'll see if I can get Dave on board with doing that. But today on the podcast, have got a very exciting show for you. I'm pretty excited about this one. Tim Beat, uh, one of my favorite humans on Earth, is here with a new essay about the joys of podcasting and making a YouTube channel. Uh, and we love Tim so much. And his daughter, Grace, is pure joy. You'll hear that coming up next. Uh, after Tim Beat, my daughter, Zoe, is going to be on the show. And we... Went out fishing the other day and caught a brook trout. Right through the ice, and uh, she cooked it. And we're doing a little cooking segment on planking a brook trout. It's going to be delightful. And then, and I'm joined by Lawrence Dorsey, the Piedmont Region Fisheries Research Coordinator from the Inland Fisheries Division for North, Car- North Carolina wildlife resources commission and he's going to be with us and we're going to talk all things north carolina fishing and do the news for you as well hold on tight we got a big show you're going to love this one let's start with tim beat
0: i remember in august 1981 when mtv came on the air The very first music video they played was Video Killed the Radio Star. The song included the lyrics, And now we meet in an abandoned studio. We hear the playback, and it seems so long ago. Recording a podcast can sometimes feel like that. We sit in our basements with mics on and doors closed to talk about the topics we love. Fish, fishing, and eating fish takes a lot of work to be always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. Well, the mostly true part isn't a lot of work, but the others are. There are so many fishing YouTube stars making gobs of cash with their GoPro cameras and sponsors and free gear that somehow making a podcast can seem a little old-fashioned. You don't get to see Clay Groves doing a taste test of real tuna compared to a plant-based tuna substitute but you sure can hear him chewing as he shoves a quarter of a sandwich into his mouth and chomps an inch away from his mic but even though many famous youtubers have millions of subscribers and probably earn a hundred dollars a cast while they're fishing i kind of like the old school nature of podcasts and i wonder whether despite their significant wealth Some of those famous YouTubers might feel unfulfilled because the one thing they haven't accomplished is being interviewed by Clay Groves on the Fish Nerds podcast. It's kind of like the 1972 song, Cover of the Rolling Stone by Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show. In the song, the band lamented that they had achieved everything except getting their picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah, maybe some of those famous YouTubers feel the same way about never having been on the Fish Nerds podcast. I wonder. I wonder.
1: Well, we're big YouTubers, we've got lots of followers, and we're loved everywhere we go. We talk about fishing, and we talk about lures, get cash for videos. We have mad fishing skills that give us all kinds of thrills But the thrill we've never known Is to be broadcast on the Fish Church podcast Be interviewed by Clay Grove. By Clay Grove Wanna hear my voice on the podcast Grove. Then I'd no longer be an outcast Grove. Wanna hear my smiling voice Being interviewed by Clay Grove daily even when it's rainy got the best photo you ever seen making YouTube videos is easy just like a cash machine now it's all designed to blow our minds Podcast, Bro. then I no longer be an outcast. Bro. Wanna hear my smiling voice being interviewed by Clay Gray. Podcast.
2: Thank you, Tim. That was so much fun. And Grace, uh, you're an amazing human, and I really appreciate that. I, I was needing a pick-me-up here at the end of the year, and and that song did it for me. I can't believe you. <laughs> the idea that someone would sing, being interviewed by Clay Groves, kills me so much. Thank you so much for doing that for me. Let's, uh, Let's jump right into our cooking segment with my daughter Zoe, who just turned 13 years old. And we went ice fishing the other day, uh, Christmas Eve, in fact. We went ice fishing for brook trout, uh, and she caught her first brook trout through the ice, and we decided to murder it for you. I'm in my kitchen with Zoe. Say hi, Zoe. Hello. The other day, we went ice fishing for brook trout and caught one, and we're going to cook this one. Before we cook it, Zoe, let's talk about how we catch a brook trout through the ice. Tell me about our brook trout fishing technique.
3: So what we do is we go to one foot of water... And we sit down, and we just jig and wait for the schools of brook trout to come around to us. And when they do, they're going to just, like, uh, go underneath the hole and try to hit your bait. Um, and it takes a couple tries for them to hit it, and then they'll hit it, and you take them out of the water.
2: Tell me about uh, what kind of bait did we use.
3: I used a mop fly that I tied. It was my first tie I've ever done. What color? Uh, pink and yellow.
2: Yeah, that was, uh, that was green and red.
3: <laughs> it was pink and yellow. Okay,
2: pink and yellow. I thought it was chartreuse and fuchsia. They didn't. Yeah. Okay, so our recipe here we're making today is called Spiced Cedar Planked Salmon with Maple Bourbon Glaze. We're swapping the salmon for a uh, brook trout, and we filleted this, and we did what's called butterflying it, which is when you take the backbone and bones out and lay it flat. We took a plank of... Well, usually you can use cedar, but actually I used a plank of maple, soaked it in water for about two hours, and we laid it on the plank skin side down. Zoe made the rub. And and Zoe, tell us what's in the rub. It's
3: a rub of chili pe- powder, onion powder, garlic powder, smoked paprika, salt and pepper.
2: Salt and pepper. And what we're going to do is going to rub this all over the fish. Zoe's doing it right now. She's rubbing it all over the fish right now. And we're going we're gonna to let it sit on the fish until it kind of self-moistens, about 10 minutes. And while that's going, we're gonna make a maple bourbon glaze. Yeah, rub it right in. Do a lot of it right on there. What's it feel like?
3: It uh, feels like uh, ocean sand because it has salt in it.
2: And it already smells really good.
3: It also, I tasted it, and it tastes really strong. Firstly, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: because I just had about like a lot of it, but then it's
2: it's really good. Yeah, and we're gonna do is we're gonna rub this in really good. Let it sit for ten minutes. Put more on the sides here, Zoe. And we're going to make our bourbon glaze, and the bourbon glaze is made with uh, about six tablespoons of bourbon and three-quarter cups of maple syrup. We make our own maple syrup, but we don't make our own bourbon.
3: Uh, yeah, that's true.
2: Do, do you like bourbon?
3: I've never, I don't want to.
2: <laughs> You'll be tasting it today, but uh, as a glaze, we'll cook yeah, the alcohol out. All right, back in a minute talk about our bourbon glaze. Okay, so now we're making our bourbon glaze, and all this is is bourbon and maple syrup. So, it how's it smell?
3: absolutely disgusting.
2: Are you telling me you don't drink bourbon? Yeah. We're going to let this boil for about 10 minutes. Should we reduce about half and become a nice, thick, gooey syrup, like a candy almost?
3: Uh, gross, I think?
2: <laughs> well, we'll see. And then while this is, while this is uh, heating up, we're going to start the grill and get the grill good and hot. So we put this plank on. There it goes. And the fish is resting and that that rub we put on there is t- all turning like wet looking, which is what we want to do. Yes. It is. Looks uh, good, doesn't it? Do you have you eaten trout before?
3: Uh yeah. Yeah. Good. Do you like I, it? I do. I like fish except for lake trout.
2: No one likes lake trout. Yeah, lake trout is awful. <laughs> Although I bet you with a good recipe we can we're gonna keep we're gonna we figure it out. We're gonna kill a lake trout this year, I promise.
3: Okay, that sounded really wrong. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right, back in a minute with the grill. Okay, so we have uh the, the maple glaze is done. It's all hot and bubbly and gooey. The salmon, or salmon, the trout has a, absorbed a lot of the rub. Zoe's going to grab the trout, and I'm going to grab the glaze, and we're going to go out to the grill. Oh,
3: and the glaze now smells good.
2: It's because the bourbon burned up.
3: Yep. So now it just smells like maple syrup.
2: Yeah. So out to the grill we go. we got planked salmon. We cut some lemons, too, to heat up with it, because lemons look good. <laughs> Smells good, doesn't it? All right, we're outside now. Grill is good and hot. Coming out, Zoe. We're gonna put this plank right on the on the on the heat on the grill here. And what we're gonna do now is we're gonna pour some of that glaze on top of this trout. Bring it out. And we're gonna just kind of baby it and just kind of spoon it on like that. You wanna do that, Zoe? Sure. Okay. It's a real. It should be a thick like candy almost.
3: It's almost candied, yeah. yeah. This is going to be amazing. We're eating this for lunch today? This is lunch. Oh, yeah. yeah.
2: And with a nice thick piece of slant salmon, it might take 10 minutes to cook, but this is a very thin piece of trout, so I bet we're going to be done in less than five minutes.
3: Honestly, yeah. yeah. I've only ever caught tiny salmon. How big do they get?
2: Uh, we've seen, I mean, lank salmon can get pretty big, but cohos and chinooks can get to like 35, 40 pounds.
3: Wow, I think I've caught. We've caught like half pound. You've
2: caught landlocked Atlantic salmon, (laughs) little ones. That looks great. Pour that. You can just pour a little bit on there.
3: And then I'm going to keep the spoon so it has a little. Look the spoon. Yeah, it's the smartest thing to do.
2: That looks great. All right, that's it. We close the lid. Let cook. How long? Till it's done. (laughs) The meat should be flaky. And then we'll know, it's, uh, we'll know it's done. And then we'll do, a un, uh, we'll, we'll do a taste test live. Okay, it's been on the grill about f- seven or eight minutes. The meat is flaky. I put some uh, grilled lemons on top as a garnish. And now we're going to go give it a taste. Let's get it off the grill. Get it in the house and find Zoe. Open my door first. <laughs> Looks really good. Looks really good. All right, Zoe. Yes. It's tasting time. Yum. What do you think of this? So it's oh, Yeah.
3: It's gorgeous.
2: So the the board warped a little bit.
3: Which is fine, and it's dripping.
2: And yeah, it which is good. Yep. Now, grab a couple of forks, and let's forks. give it a taste.
3: Okay, so we have a couple of forks. hmm Here we
2: go. All right, and... How do we do this? So there's going to be a lot of bones in it. What you can do is you take your fork and yeah, stick it in there, and you can drag your fork across the meat. They'll come right off the bone and right off of the skin. And then you can take your mouthful. So he's always eating it. Oh, that doesn't work. <laughs> Got a bone right away. And
3: skin, too. And skin's good. Mm-hmm, it is. How's
2: it taste?
3: It's like... Maple syrup and fish, it's amazing. It's really And good. the peppery on it, you can definitely taste it. It's so good.
2: Mmm. Again, just drag your fork across like this, Zoe, and...
3: there's uh, another bone in my mouth.
2: You've got the bony spot, pony side.
3: Mmm.
2: Here's and another one. Come down from this end. There's less bones. Mmm. All right. So... This
3: is a definite yes recipe. Mm-hmm.
1: Eat
2: this. So planked... Planked brook trout with maple bourbon glaze mm-hmm. and... Uh, And we'll put a recipe up on the show notes for this episode. What do you think?
3: Delicious.
2: Do you feel bad about killing this fish still? No. (laughs) Thank you, Zoe, for doing that with me. And you can find it truly was a delightful fish to cook. Maybe I'll do a video on my next trout on how I'll make a YouTube video for Tim on how to uh how to butterfly a trout maybe i'll learn how to do it without getting the bones all in it too so that'll be a lot of fun and again thanks so for killing that fish with me i appreciate you okay hey
4: everyone i love podcasts who's got recommendations and send that was quick do you like comedy what about movies Pop culture. Um, yeah. Do you like animals? What about science? Oh, well, y- yeah. You dig plants? What about writing, snacks, rambling, and rant? Well, uh. Making I... improv and interviews, Canadians, Australians, voting forecasts, and soup reviews, ladies, gentlemen, cretins or comic books, script breeds, bad TV, heads that show, perfectly picked packages popping up, podcasts pointing people to discover other podcasts. Yes? Fantastic. Check out the Podfix Network podfixnetwork.com at podfix on twitter official underscore podfix on the gram plus check out podfix presents wherever fine podcasts are found the podfix network artist owned and loved hey
3: guys look at that adorable town there's the classic new england church the quaint village store all surrounding that beautiful pond The sparkling snow-frosted pines. Oh, look, they're ice skating and all those folks ice fishing. This is God's country. Let's go ice fishing this weekend, please, Dad. Yeah, let's try something new. We already have all of our warm stuff for skiing. Plus, the kid is actually making plans to
2: put down her tablet for a change.
0: It's certainly something different, and it sounds really fun. But
2: how? Hey! I know a few guys. Have you ever thought about hitting the hard water but don't know where to start? I'm Clay, licensed fishing guide, and my partner Vinny and I can get you on and off the ice safely. All you need is warm clothes and a fishing license, and the Fish Nerds Guide Service will do the rest. Go to fishnerds.com for pricing and information. Okay, Fish Nerds, I'm so excited because today on the podcast, I have Lawrence Dorsey, who has more than 20 years of experience as a state agency's fisheries management and research biologist. His work has focused on sport fish populations in reservoirs, rivers, and small impoundments. Lawrence, thank you for coming on the podcast.
5: Thank you for having me, Clay. I, I'm looking forward to it.
2: I'm excited because our friend Greg, a mutual friend of ours, uh, connected us. And you thought, you know, let's, let's do this. do this, Let's talk fishing. Yep. Uh, so there's a lot you want to talk about. We Before the show, I could tell you were doing this brain dump. And I'm like, all right, stop, stop, stop. stop. Let's save it for the show because you couldn't <laughs> wait to get
5: going. That's right.
2: So we're, gonna, we're gonna actually going to jump right in. I don't care about your whole background and history because no one does. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> that's the worst part of inner interviews. So tell me about yourself.
1: Yeah.
5: Uh,
2: so we're going to jump right in. So you're a fisheries biologist, and that's a person that uh, virtually no angler actually really interacts with on a regular basis. What does that mean for you? Like you do all this great work, but you don't deal with people.
5: Well, we do we do deal with people. Um, we have certain things that, for instance, in multiple states and in my state, we'll have uh, what are called creel surveys uh, from time to time, where we go out and we ask anglers how many fish did you catch, what kind of fish did you catch. So we do have some interaction there. We do speak with people, um, but as I as I mentioned to you in the pre-show, um, most state agencies, uh, especially proportionally, the number of people that are fishing and and just state employees in general in their states, fisheries biologists uh, make up a, a pretty small uh, number of people in those agencies. And so, um, the chances of you seeing one of us in the field, while it's not impossible, um, there's a lot of water, there's, there's a lot of places to fish, and there's right. not well, many others. Well, hang on
2: a second, let me tell, I'm going to tell listeners how they can recognize a field biologist. Okay. Right. So, if you're out fishing and you see someone walking around the woods wearing a Hunter Orange, not a biologist. If you see someone walking around carrying a fishing pole and has a fishing license on their hat, not a biologist. Biologists have lab coats on and little glasses with tape in the middle, and that's how you can recognize them. (laughs)
5: In the wild. <laughs> so, sort of yeah <laughs> normally it's we're driving the elect we're driving the, elec- the electrofishing boat or we're, <laughs> we're running gill nets or we're sinking fish attractors somewhere um but again yeah that's it's it, it is not uh we we do see people and i guess probably the place we do see them the most is at the boat ramp mm-hmm. um or or you know in my one of my former jobs when we would be out stocking trout obviously we'd run into trout anglers a lot um that were there so but again, in terms of the, the number of people that are out there fishing across the United States um, versus the number of biologists, your, your chances of an encounter are not not as good as they are, would say, maybe, as I mentioned earlier, a law enforcement, a game warden, wildlife officer, conservation officer, depending on what they're called in your state.
2: Right, fish police, we call them in some states, yeah. <laughs> so get them. Get them, got to get them. So, yeah, so you're a fisheries biologist and, and you're really trying to be a resource for anglers you what you want you're using it you're collecting data from anglers to make their experience better right
5: yes we are in fact so some of the things we do um are more traditional dealing with fish for instance we'll go out and do a survey where we'll collect fish it's actually what i'm going to be doing tomorrow working on a reservoir here collecting fish data but we also collect data from anglers we just finished a survey at lake gaston which is a large reservoir on the north carolina virginia border where we spent a year um going around on a rotational basis interviewing anglers and asking them about their catch and then also asking them about their opinions
2: oh Oh, you (laughs) got (laughs) it
5: well, it, it's, it's, it, it's, it, yeah, you ask an open-ended question, you know, you never know what you're going to expect, but, or what to expect, but.
2: Well, it, but also uh, talking to anglers and hoping to tell you the truth.
5: Yeah. You know, I think, I, th- I think that, what we see is pretty good compliance because they, um, they realize that, you know, we're out there trying to collect, you know, good information. And it's, it's, um, you know, we make it very clear to them that this is not a law enforcement contact. Um, it, it's not, it's, it's, it's totally science-based. And, like she Miranda
2: writes for them?
5: <laughs> no, <laughs> will not no. Be
2: held out to count a, a court of law and all that?
5: <laughs> no, no. In fact, that's actually one of the tenants in, in sort of the science side of that those studies as we don't do that so that you know anglers do feel comfortable with us and typically if we see something that looks like it's a violation we, we'll advise them hey if, if, if a law enforcement officer were to contact you you know this could be a possible violation and sure. a lot of times they just don't know but the, the other thing we're starting to do um, we've actually got a s- small survey we're hoping to step up a notch in one of my work areas um, where we have a river that we really can't collect data on very easily because it's pretty shallow but we know they're kayak anglers out there. And so we're, we're using an online app for them to, when they go out to tell us how many fish they caught, where they caught, how long they were out. It's about a 15 minute or less survey. They take each time and then they hit send on the iPhone or Android and it, and it sends it up to the cloud for us. And we can look at those data later. Um, As I said, we, we just gotten started on that. So um, those are some new tools that we, we didn't have 20 plus years ago when I got into this, obviously that are, helping us engage with anglers a lot more than we used to.
2: Well, that's amazing. It's funny because 10 years ago, I went on a quest to catch and eat every kind of freshwater fish in New Hampshire. There's 48 species. And what I did was I called fisheries biologists in the state of New Hampshire and got their survey data. And they had it all on a Google uh, map. Mm -hmm. And so I could download that data and this is before smartphones, you know, were popular. Right. If I was, if I did it this year, it'd be easy. But that year it was hard because I had to go on a computer, print out the maps, and go find the fish. Uh, but, but so I can imagine, like the data you collect from anglers—if you can get like even a even like like twenty or thirty percent of anglers participate in these uh, citizen science surveys—you could have some remarkable data that you can't get anywhere else.
5: This is true. It really is, and and there are, like I said, there's certain. Uh, situations, particularly this river, the Hall River, which is in the central part of North Carolina, that it's, there's not a lot of access for, for motorboats and 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 stretches of the river just aren't easy to navigate. So our traditional survey gears, you know, don't work very well there. It's, it's hard. Do you,
2: do you typically electroshock the fish or net them or what's your typical collection?
5: We do a little bit of everything. Um, we do some electrofishing. That most of that works in the spring and the summer. Right now, we, we just came out of our, our uh, trap netting season, which is um, a, a type of net that really looks like a, a net with a trap on the end of it. Some other place is called a fike net, F-Y-K-E, um, that we use for, for crappy. Um, I'm from North Carolina, so we say crappy here. Um, and, <laughs> then, uh, and then uh, we're just getting ready, really kind of getting into the meat of our reservoir gill netting season, primarily for striped bass. So, you have uh,
2: freshwater stripers?
5: We do. We, we, we have a, um, uh, stocking program here and, and a lot of our impoundments, they don't naturally reproduce. Um, but we do have a stocking program where we stock fingerling stripers each year and then that produces a fishery there. Um, oh, so it must be
2: so much fun. <laughs>
5: Yeah, it's, it's one of the dynamics, you know, we're we're blessed that we do have different dynamics of different fisheries for, for people that want to go do different things. But, um, yeah, so, so we, we used a variety of gear, but, but definitely, like I said, we're trying to get a little bit more engaged with, with anglers and, and let them know what we do and also give them the conduit to, to let them know what, what their interests are and, uh, and, and kind of what's on their mind.
2: Well, I'm sure you're finding a lot of nerdy fishermen who love sharing information, so, I can't wait to hear what, uh, what kind of data you collect over the next couple of years now that you're doing that.
5: Right. No, we do. We do. We, we have some people that are very passionate. They call us. I mean, for instance, we had a survey, uh, what we call an angler diary survey where we ask people, it's similar to what I just mentioned with the app, except it's the old school where you take a piece of paper out with you and you record how many, and we had several hundred, you know, recordings in this, this study. Uh, it was on a cat catfish on Lake Wiley. And, uh, it was really from one guy. Um, he was just super passionate. Um, that was his home lake. That's what he liked to fish for was catfish. And he was more than willing to write down the length and the weight of every catfish he caught for about a year. And uh, so it was it was really impressive to see that, that somebody was that passionate about it.
2: Oh, that's cool. Now, we're going to cycle back to this in, a, in the news in a little bit because I've got a news story related to this. But okay. um, so we're not going to go into it deep now because I want to talk about catch and release fishing and how we track those with fisheries biologists, but save that for a sure. bit. Um, the other problem you guys are having in North Carolina is people love moving fish around. We call them up here, we call them bucket biologists. There are people who think that they know more than the fisheries biologists and they catch a crappie and they want to move that to a lake that doesn't have any crappie. And they put it in a bucket, drive it over there and dump it in the water. That's happening like crazy right now in North Carolina.
5: Yeah, it actually is. Um, you know, the problem that we're having right now, and, and, and let me back up and say that fisheries biologists and fisheries managers in the fifties sixties and seventies as hatchery technology got better and better. Um, and even maybe before that, but, but that's really probably the the heyday of it. Um, we're really good at at producing fish and moving them around ourselves. And we, we moved some fish around back in the day that, that we, we shouldn't have moved around.
2: You see that that nationally, like, Everywhere you go, you see that as the case, you know, there's, there's in New Hampshire, for example, we have a book we, I've read called the, the bassing of New Hampshire. And it's the history of like every fish that got moved around the state. And like, there's, we have no native fish, <laughs> you know, like four <laughs> native species and like feel 44 invasive fish because of the, of this, like, Hey, let's throw that, you know, they have throwing Chinook salmon into the Winnipesaukee, like Winnipesaukee to see if they would stay, you know, right. Is it work? Nope. All right. And,
5: <laughs> and that's, that was repeated in North Carolina, New everywhere. Hampshire, you name the state. Yeah. yeah. Everywhere. And everywhere. so, but, but what we've seen lately, at least in our, our part of the world in the Southeast is, is a species of fish called the Alabama bass. Um, it's, what, it's, what is that? Yeah. So historically it was, it was thought of being a subspecies of spotted bass, um, which spotted bass are a little more common. Uh, some people call them Kentucky bass. Their official name is spotted bass. You're not bass.
2: helping me at all.
5: Okay. <laughs> so 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 they're in the same family oh, okay, or the same, same fish genus fish. rather as uh, as largemouth and smallmouth.
2: Okay. So they're sunfish.
5: They're, yeah, they're a micropterus. They're a temperate bass, is what they are. Um
2: temperate bass were like stripers and white perch and
5: those are um
2: and 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 largemouth bass and smallmouth bass and well, sunfish were all in the sunfish families.
5: Yeah, I'm 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 probably struggling a little bit with my nomenclature right now. Um mm-hmm. But, but they're in the Micropterus genus. Um, so, so Micropterus salmoides is largemouth bass, which everybody's familiar with. Dolomieu is smallmouth. Mm-hmm. Um, the spotted bass is, is really native to um, the Midwestern part of the United States, all the way kind of over into North Carolina, into the, the Mississippi drainage. They're like um, a skinny
2: largemouth.
5: They do. They, they don't get as big as largemouth, the actual spotted bass. Now, the, this is where the Alabama bass comes in. So the Alabama bass is now genetically distinct from the spotted bass. But at one point, as I said, it was a subspecies. Okay. The, the Alabama bass in its native range, which is the, the Alabama river drainage, in, which is starts out in Georgia, goes in through Alabama and winds up in Mississippi, that whole Mobile Bay drainage area there. Um, they do get larger than or as large as some largemouth bass. So you can see a four to five pound Alabama bass. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's where they became attractive to anglers is it was something different. Um, the habitats down there are a little different. So uh, our lakes, some of our lakes, largemouth bass don't do as well because of the habitat. Um, they're clearer lakes. They don't have as many nutrients in them. And so the idea was, well, you know, if they're not working out. Let's move the Alabama bass up here. And that has been played out in several different scenarios across the southeast, um, including North Carolina and we've seen things like in our lakes where we just had largemouth bass, we, uh, we have um, we're starting to see you know our largemouth bass just kind of disappear more or less, uh, or at least be restricted to certain areas of the lake and and a, a fishery that's now dominated by Alabama bass.
2: Let me ask you a question. So, so are largemouth natives to North Carolina?:
5: They are. Um, the, the, at least the records indicate they are. Okay. Um, I think have, it was, in New
2: Hampshire they're, they're not and we have them everywhere, but they're not native up here. So I'm just curious. Yeah.
5: Yeah. And that's one of those species as well. that has been moved around to a lot of places as you well know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, but the other thing we're seeing, which probably for a lot of people in a lot of situations is as troubling or even more troubling is, so as I mentioned, it's a competition thing with the largemouth. It's just, it's just straight up competition, sure. but with smallmouth and with some of the endemic bass species that, that live in the streams and on the Georgia, Alabama line, like shoal bass and, Swanee bass and and uh, I have a lot of good ones with you. Choctaw <laughs> bass, yeah, Choctaw so,
2: bass.
5: yeah. So, so what, particularly with smallmouth, that's the one we've seen in reservoirs. Alabama bass hybridize with them, okay. And what you see at, at first is you see these hybrids that people call meanmouths because they're a cross between an Alabama bass and a smallmouth bass. I
2: love that name so much.
5: Yeah, and 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 they are you know they're good fish to catch, but eventually what you see is over time that hybridization continues to occur and continues to occur. And, and that Alabama bass just water down the smallmouth bass gene pool till there's no smallmouth bass left. And that's actually occurred in several reservoirs that are up in North Georgia. Um, Blue Ridge is one of them. I believe um, Chattug is the one that borders North Carolina that that definitely happened in. Mm-hmm. And so um, so it's a big concern of ours because, you know, once these fish get in these systems, we really can't get them out. No. Um, there's, there's no way to get them out. And, and we can't stock our way out of the problem um, because we're just not going to produce enough fish that would survive. And, and the Alabama bass are just going to keep reproducing the whole time we would be stocking something else. So I was going to say
2: like, if a fish can reproduce naturally in a system they're put into, they're going to outcompete things because they don't need to be managed. They would just keep making more of themselves and things like bass, you know, they, their mouths are so big, they can eat nearly everything. So they just
5: Yeah, and, and uh, Alabama bass are very aggressive, um, and they're very much a habitat generalist, which also, again, makes them very good in the competition sense. So I guess really the take-home message that I would say to folks is, is you know, if you go somewhere and you catch a fish that you like, either do one of two things, either take it home and eat it, mm-hmm. um, which is certainly okay if the rules allow it, if they're legal within the rules, or release it at the location that you caught it. Um, that's, that's certainly okay too. There, there's a few little situations out there, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the whole snakehead, oh, yeah. uh, dealing in, you know, where they ask people to take them, not, not release them at all. And so there are those, those cases, but for the most part, um, we would say release the fish on site or take it home and, and eat it. Um, don't, don't move it. And, um, and I think and that's, that's
2: illegal in most States, like most States have laws about moving, about moving fish.
5: Correct. And, and we do as well. Um, we, we have one as well, but as you can imagine, that's kind of a daunting task when you it only <laughs> takes a few fish to be moved to start a huge problem. So, um, so yeah, we, we did, we definitely do as well and, 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 and advise people of that, you know, it's illegal, but it's, it's, so it, there's a legal side of it. And then there's the, just the ecological side of it as well.
2: Right. And, and there's a, there's a good amount of anglers who don't care about what's legal. They're going to do what they want to do.
5: Yeah. I I don't, I, 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 I wouldn't know what, how to put a number on that. Um, Seven.
2: It's seven anglers.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, but I, I would just say that and I think some people are well-intentioned when they do it. They don't have Mm -hmm. malintentions. I think they just, you know, do it because they think, well, it's, it's okay. Um, Uh, I
2: mean, I mean, I, I can, I understand the inclination to do it. Like there's, I have a lake nearby me where there's no fish in it and I, and, and all lakes around are full of fish and i like there's been times where i thought gosh if someone else not me we we'll just move some fish around i'd be so happy um so i understand why someone might want to do it but yeah it's a bad idea
5: yeah and what i would say in that situation um if you're curious about why there are no fish in the lake or what could survive there or what your options are contact your state fisheries biologist um for the area you know if you contact the main office even if you don't know where the where the district that you're in or the, the you know some state are set up by district, some region, um, contact your main office and, and they can put you in contact with a biologist and they'd be happy to tell you, to talk to you about your lake. And chances are, if they're the local biologist, they're going to have that familiarity and probably a history as to, you know, what's going on there. Maybe some things that you may not even know about.
2: Yeah, no question so, about it. No question about it. So I want to move on a little bit because I want to yeah. talk about it because there's so much stuff. Like you're so full of, your brain is packed full of information that has to get out. Um, so I want to talk about, um, about, uh, setting up, uh, one of the things you do is put habitat in lakes for fishers to catch fish.
4: Correct.
2: If you, you were talking to me, uh, uh, you know, before about putting Christmas trees in the lakes and setting up structure for crappie and that sort of thing. Now in New Hampshire, that's totally legal. No one does it. Well, no one does it legally, but then you're talking about doing, I'm going, oh, I wish we could do it legally. What are the benefits of setting that habitat up?
5: Yeah. So, um, in most cases, what you're seeing by doing the habitat is there, there, there's potential for increased reproduction, but really the, 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 the take home is that it's a place to give fish some, some cover. Um, so for anglers, that's a place where they can go and cover orienting fish such as crappie or bass, um, at times catfish, even, um, they, they will use those structures and, and then, um, it's, it's a good place for those fish for the fish to go. And a lot of times, you know, the, the prey fish will be hanging around and they'll use it as cover to then ambush the prey. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it really has those benefits to it. But, you know, in our reservoirs here um, we have a lot and some of them, we have a lot of shoreline development. Um, some of them, we don't have um, as much uh, just natural habitat in them, uh, you know, because they're reservoirs. And so it, it, it provides that, that habitat that might be occurring in a more natural situation. It, it, it gives us anglers a place to go and kind of concentrate their efforts a little bit.
2: Well, so, I'm curious. So the lakes in North Carolina, do you have mostly natural lakes or do you have all man-made lakes? What's your habitat like?
5: We are very much man-made. We, we have uh, some, some natural lakes out in the eastern part of the state called the Bay Lakes, uh, Lake Matta Lake Phelps. Like Waccamaw uh, in the very eastern part of the state, are uh, and there's some smaller ones along with that that are that are um, natural lakes. But most of our our um, lakes, if you will, I put that in quotes, are actually reservoirs. The vast majority of them.
2: are. Yeah, and and I know there's a lot of a lot of a lot of states in the south like that, New Hampshire, we're full of natural lakes. So it's maybe that's why they, they discourage you putting habitat in because the habitat's there naturally. So, uh, but in, in North Carolina, you guys have apps out where you can like. Find those man-made reefs or places where fish might live, which I think is amazing.
5: Yeah, so it's pretty simple. Um, if you go to our the app-based version of our of our webpage, which is ncwildlife.org. NC Wildlife is all one word. Um, one of the options there, I don't have my phone in front of me, but is is where to fish. And if you click on that, one of the options you can get is is a map, an online map of the fish attractors that are out there, and it'll center you, you know, based on where you're at at the time. And then it'll also allow you to, to use a drop down menu or scroll across the map or whatever, however you want to interface with that to to find those. And then the other option out there, which is on our website too, it's it's actually on the formal website on the the non mobile part of it, I guess, is, um, if you have a depth finder on your boat and you'd like to just download the whole coverage and put it in your boat, put it on your depth finder, um, or your GPS unit, if you're fishing out of a kayak, you can do that as well. We have them, all the coordinates there. Um, and it tells you, you know, what lake they are and it actually tells you what kind of structure it is. So, um, so we, do you fish? I do i don't fish as much as I used to um i have two two uh teenage girls that play softball so um pretty competitively the younger one does so um my fishing days are kind of in, in a little bit of an ebb right now um I did many years ago and I open once i get these girls uh, on off to college
2: that, Once they get the uh, hell out of my house <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah that uh that that uh I'll probably pick it back up a little bit so I don't get to fish as much as i used to but i but i do
2: I've got two daughters as well. Now, now, what part of North Carolina are you living in?
5: So, I live um, in Albemarle, North Carolina, which if you look at a map, you think Albemarle, you think Albemarle Sound, northeast part of the state. That's actually not true. I, I live um, an hour east of Charlotte. So
2: oh, Perfect. Uh, the reason I'm asking is because my in-laws, my brother and sister-in-law live in Charlotte. And okay. whenever I go down there, all they want to do is go golfing or go racetrack watching. Yeah, And, and that sounds – both those things are awful. So – when I come down, I, I would like you to take me fishing.
5: <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> if I can't, I know some people that, that are better at it than I am in that area, but the,
2: I, don't, the, I don't get the, good the, at it. I just want to go fishing.
5: The Catawba, the Catawba river is right there. Literally. <laughs> I mean, in, in the backyard of, of Lake Norman and you got Lake Wiley.
2: Cause Charlotte's a terrible town. Like it's awful place. So I'm game for whatever. <laughs> like I, I, hate Charlotte. So much. It's like, it's all banks and nothing to do. Like I, I there's, there's one bar called the bar chart that has a riding bull. And that's the only thing good about the whole town.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to not touch that. Uh Charlotte, I was a district biologist. I'm on
2: record. I'm on record.
5: Yeah. <laughs> I was a district biologist over Charlotte for a long time, so uh-huh. um of Mecklenburg County. So um yeah, there there's some good resources in fact as I mentioned and I think we might talk about it in a minute about trout stocking, but that's one of the places we just stocked trout today was was in Charlotte, so right in the middle of town. Right so, by the Target. Uh, no, but, uh, but 17 but, targets. Yeah, <laughs> no, right off of, right in McAlpine Creek, which is, uh, uh, in the, I'm gonna do my Charlotte geography here. It's in the little bit of the South and East corner of Charlotte. So.
2: Perfect. Perfect. I want to quickly talk about your specialty, which is fishing impoundment.
5: And yeah, and that's, if, if, that's what I've studied.
2: Yeah. So let's define an impoundment first. What's an impoundment?
5: So just an impoundment is any body of water that's that's man-made that's going to have some kind of water control structure most likely a dam. That's okay. that's going to be an impoundment.
2: So I was visualizing like small impoundments like like small urban areas where they've got like a small dam or something like that, but you're talking any of them.
5: Yeah, so so we I think kind of the working definition and the, the break point between what we would call a small impoundment and what we would call a reservoir and there's there's multiple ways to slice it up but um, anything about 500 acres and less, we consider a small impoundment and anything That's bigger huge. than that, we, we, we consider a reservoir. So,
2: okay. All right, cool. Yeah. All right. And so like, so why did you choose impoundments as your focus?
5: Yeah. So growing up, I, I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, surrounded by a couple of impoundments and, um, and as it just so happened, once I got my undergraduate degree, um, I, you know, really the path of fisheries biologist, without getting too far off the, the beaten path, so to speak, is um, you, you go to school, you get, a, you get an undergraduate degree, and then typically to become a biologist, you need to get a master's degree at least. And so um, when I was looking around the southeast at potential positions, um, the one that interested me most and kind of fit me the best was a position at, at Tennessee Tech University in Cookville, Tennessee, working on largemouth bass and spotted bass um, in, a, in a reservoir there and uh and there were a lot of bio- there were a lot of researchers that i was interested in that i had followed for several years that were doing a lot of reservoir research and so um as it as it turned out you know i was able to get the position go do the project get my degree um, when i came back to north carolina my first job was really a mixed bag we had trout streams we had a few reservoirs we had some smallmouth bass rivers um, and then in 2000 when i got promoted to district biologist uh, i came to the south central part of the state um charlotte and east where we had two major river drainages that were heavily impounded. So um, so I've spent a lot of time working on reservoirs. And when I was a district biologist, that was, you know, it was kind of my beat. That was kind of the area that I covered was mostly reservoirs. We had Lake Norman, which is the largest reservoir in the state, 32,000 acres. And then we had High Rock Lake, which is the second, which is about 16,000 acres, eight, 16 to 18,000 acres. So, um, so, so that's kind of it was kind of an interest of mine, but it also was sort of necessitated by the, the work areas that I was I was in as well.
2: Yeah, sounds like a good match. So, what was so primary species, you were talking bass species, but there must be other species that you chased out there.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, largemouth bass are, you know, probably the one that everyone's most familiar with across the United States, but, you know, certainly crappy, uh, mostly black crappy here. We do have a few white crappy populations. Uh, and then, as I said earlier, I think if I didn't, we stock striped bass in a lot of our uh, reservoirs uh, they're not they don't reproduce but we it's it's a what we call a put grow and take fishery
2: put and take yep
5: yeah and so um so so they so they'll you know uh cool. we do that and then and you we got, have some you
2: got, you got stripers do you get like white perch or white bass.
5: we've got both actually yeah. um and
2: those we, are all related those are all the same family
5: yes they're all the same genus actually yep they're all maroni. um and so um yes and so white perch actually in some of our reservoirs probably were native they were impounded and some of them they were placed in there after the impoundments it just kind of
2: for uh, listeners who don't know white perch and white bass and stripers are all naturally anadromous fish but they can be landlocked and that's what you're talking about
5: yeah white white bass um were brought in from the mississippi drainage and um and they don't they're not typically they 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 don't uh they're not typically anadromous, but definitely yeah yeah white bass are not but but white stripers definitely are, and white perch in North Carolina, where you find them mostly uh, in their native range, they are down in the coastal areas. That's that's where they're native to.
2: Yeah, and we have start. native up in New Hampshire too. We've got sea-run them, and then they're also landlocked in our biggest lakes too. Mm-hmm. And yep. the the ones in New Hampshire and Lake Winnipesaukee, for example, are among some of the largest in the world. They get to five pounds for white. Perch.
5: Wow, that is a large white perch. Yeah, that mean, is
2: I, not abnormal.
5: <laughs> no, that's crazy because I think for us a, a two pounder is really big. Um, yeah,
2: I mean, and, and it's the only lake in New Hampshire where they're big. They're all everywhere else are maybe a pound. So yeah. one lake is special. There's something about it.
5: But so. the other species we do have is we have some catfish species. Um, catfish some catfish again cat introduced cats,
2: blue cats. What do you got?
5: Yep. Channels, blues, and flatheads in most of our reservoirs. Um, And, you know, again, if we had to do it all over again, we, we, we put some, we put the blues and the flatheads in um, as biologists in the sixties and seventies. So in some places, in other places, they've made their way there through other you know, introductions, people have moved them, but in some places we definitely know we did, but, but they're, they're still sustaining populations in those reservoirs. And, you know, we just we're, we yeah, for instance up on the uh the virginia border uh lake Gaston I'm, I'm not sitting in front of my record sheet right now, but we just set the the state record for uh, a blue catfish that was you know a hundred and oh plus some, some odd pounds you know um
2: that's, that's a fish that could eat a person that's so
5: it's big. pretty big yeah oh so yeah, yeah yeah and i i was lucky enough to certify one previous to that that was. You know, 89 pounds um, and, and that record since been broken up there at Gaston. So that's a real popular blue cat fish fishery right now up on the border.
2: Uh, that's amazing. And now if people want more information on fishes of North Carolina or information about what you're doing, what can they find
5: that? Yeah, the great, the best place to go look is our website, which is again www.nc and that's all one nc wildlife. That's all one word, no spaces. dot org and you kind of can just start on there and start going through the links and you know we're we're trying all the time to update our information so that there's it's it's fairly current.
2: Perfect. And next time I'm in North Carolina, I'm going to call you and you're going to hook me up because I, I would like it much better if I was fishing and not golfing.
5: I, I you you've got my number you got my email you're welcome to give me a call I'd, I'd love to meet you in person
2: perfect you want to stick around and do some news with me
5: sure I can I can hang around
2: all right hang on I'm gonna play some news music here for you oh wrong music here we go all right everybody loves the fish in the news I'm glad I have a biologist with me here for fish in the news uh, so this is actually from your state, North Carolina State University, NCSU.
5: That is where I got my undergraduate degree from.
2: Perfect. And I'm going to read you an abstract. There's a whole article, but I'm gonna, we're going to pull this abstract apart um, because it's really interesting. In some fisheries, releases are a high percentage of total catch. Uh, recent tagging data of marine fishes have revealed that recapture of the same individual multiple times occurs frequently. We investigated the magnitude of the phenomenon and its effect on survival using previously collected Mark recaptured data of four reef species. I know you're a freshwater guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used Cox proportional hazard regression models to examine whether survival varied with release number. For three of four species, survival was significantly higher after the second, third, or fourth release as compared to the first release, perhaps resulting from selection for robust individuals. So what they were doing is they were trying to collect fish and data information from, from people who were actually fishing. And they were finding they were catching the same fish over and over, and that was skewing their data. Uh, so, so, every, so, so they were actually finding that fish seemed to be, once they were caught once, their survival rate to catch a second time or third time was higher. Than,
5: yeah, and in, in the wildlife world, that's called, uh, terrestrial wildlife, that's called trap-happy animals is what they're called. So,
2: <laughs> so you've heard this before.
5: Yeah, like I said, I've, I've not seen it quite so much in what we do, but I definitely know, and as in wildlife studies, you know, when they're out trapping, you know, doing small mammal trapping or something like that, it's not uncommon to see an animal that keeps coming back to the traps even after it's been trapped several times and released. So,
2: well, they're and they're finding that because of that, they're they're overestimating populations of fishes. Uh, so now they've looked back at the data they had before and wonder are their fisheries data accurate because you know, they were assuming every fish they caught was a unique new. fish. Yep. And if if you're collecting your data on that information and you can't extrapolate the whole thing and they were finding that a lot of fish died on release, obviously if it dies, (laughs) you're not going to catch it a second time, but right. But these fish that were strong enough to handle release the first time were fine with a second, third and fourth release.
5: Yeah. And that's, and so what you're talking about there is there, there's a lot of levels to that. Um, so the one challenge that, that I don't necessarily have that the marine fisheries biologists have is, so most of my systems are closed. In other words, you know, I have a river flowing through it, but um, that's pretty much it. You know, if a fish can't get above a dam or below a dam, or even in some of our natural lakes where there's limited connectivity with, with streams, um, maybe the fish can go in and out at some level, but in marine systems, you know they're totally open, so and the fish there,
2: yeah,
5: right. And the fish don't understand political boundaries or geographic boundaries.
2: <laughs> no one put a map in front of them.
5: No, no. And so that's something that when marine researchers are trying to do these these estimates, and and they do it a lot because again they're trying to scale this out to the entire stock of whatever species of fish they're looking at. Um, those are those are issues as to you know how accurate are the models, as you said. So, um, it's definitely something that that you know, we, we look at and what we do, but, but it's even more important with what they do because of the scale of it.
2: I find it fascinating and more interesting is like, like freshwater fishers versus saltwater fishers. I find that saltwater fishers seem to eat more fish that they catch. So I find it more interesting that they're releasing fish.
5: (laughs) Yeah. And I just, I think it, a lot of times it depends on the situation. Um, obviously there's regulations that play into that at times, um, whether they can keep them or not. Um, but then there's, um, there's certain fish that I guess just you know are more desirable to anglers to eat, so that plays into it, and that and that's something biologists consider. Um, you know, what is the release, the catch and release rate? For instance, I'll, I'll just give you an example. I will just look at some data today um, that we we generated here, um, and it's probably not surprising for people that largemouth bass fish, but the release rate or the, or the inverse of that, which is harvest rate of largemouth bass, the harvest rate is extremely low. Yeah, people don't uh, eat in our system. They yeah. don't. They're they
2: delicious. They should eat them, but they don't.
5: They don't. Yeah. And so, for, well, for instance, you flip that over and you're talking about a crappie, mm-hmm. th- that relationship doesn't, you know, hold the same. They're, they're more <laughs> likely to get taken home and eaten. And so but
2: people keep their limit of crappie, but even though they can keep bass, they choose not to.
5: Yep. yep. Yeah,
2: we hold bass up on this weird pedestal. Like it's this strange, like overvalue of a fish, I think.
5: Well, yeah, I think there's, and, and we've, we've had some discussions recently with anglers about this is that, so the catch and release ethic, which really, I guess was started probably by Bassmaster, you know, and, and that organization and sort of mushroomed out, um, was not, it was, was good intentioned and it was sort of a counter to the, the idea that, um, you know, whatever you catch, you take home. Um, in reality, there's a balance in there. So there are some some systems that you know do need harvest. Um, they need some fish to be taken out, and and harvest is not a bad thing. Um, it shapes a population in, in many ways in a positive way. Now again, you can you can flip that pendulum to the other end, where you're you know you're over harvesting to the point that you're limiting the number of individuals out there, or you're cutting off their growth history. In other words, they get to a legal size limit, and then all of them get taken out, and so when you look at the population as a whole, you don't see many fish over the size limit, but that really doesn't occur very often and particularly in, in bass populations. So, um, so there is a balance out there and that's something we try to, we try to stress to people.
2: Well, that's really cool. And, it, and it's always so, it's so interesting to me, like any, any catch and release I don't think we do enough research on catch and release. And I find that very fascinating how that all works out uh, and how some fish do well with catch and release and some seem to fail at it. Um, so Thank you so much for that. So you guys are stocking trout. This is your, own, this is your news now. Yes. Yeah, you, yeah. you are stocking trout now in North Carolina.
5: Yeah. And so, Grant, I'm here and so I'm most familiar with this, but I'm familiar that you know, Missouri's doing it. So if you have listeners in Missouri, Tennessee, Virginia, just to name a few, I'm sure there's some other states I'm going to miss and hope they're no, not I mean, offended. I mean,
2: I mean in, in the northern states right now, like New Hampshire, for example, they just stocked all the trout right before the lakes freeze. Ah, <laughs> so they dump them in, and the lakes freeze over. Then, as soon as it's safe to walk on ice, we go out and catch them. So
5: yeah, we don't we don't have the ice fishing here. So missing you, out. <laughs> if, I know, I know. I my in laws lived in Canada for about twenty years, and I never got to go ice fishing. So, mm. um, but uh, but um, yeah. It, so for us, it's it's an opportunity to create a fishery that doesn't exist during the warm water months because these fish wouldn't survive at all. And so these are hatchery raised fish that. In the, now that would, is, that
2: another, is that another make and take fishery?
5: Yes, it yeah. is. Yeah, so you,
2: do you encourage people just to
5: keep them. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because once the once it gets warm in the spring, the thermal conditions are going to not be suitable for them, and they would die of natural causes. So. So we we definitely encourage people Natural to catch Natural cause
2: them. being hot water and no oxygen. That's
5: correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, correct. And so so yeah, so we definitely encourage them to take them home if they want to. I mean, there are people that do like to go out and catch and release them, but um it's there's at least in our state and I think most states are set up this way. Um it's a seven fish per day creel and there's no size limit and there's no lure restrictions. So wow. Um, which you know, when you get into trout fishing, particularly on streams, I know in our state we have different classifications in terms of regulations, um, and so yeah. this is this is really—that's
2: a lot of fish, by the way. Seven trout is a lot of trout to keep.
5: Yeah, that's been the limit here for as long as I can remember um, on our hatchery <laughs> on our hatchery supported streams. Now on our wild streams, it's different; it's four okay. on wild streams.
2: So New Hampshire is uh, depending on the on the lake, but a most general recommendation, right, general rules are five fish or five pounds whichever happens first Hmm. and then ice fishing it's two fish or five pounds so (laughs) and uh, it's just bizarre yeah
5: yeah and 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 so i think you know for us like we're we're on we're going to be stocking 38 impoundments small small impoundments these are smaller lakes these are you know way under you know 100 acres or less impoundments um uh, for the most part there might be a couple that are over that but for the most part these are lakes and parks and and small towns, and even large towns, even Raleigh and Charlotte are getting them. Um,
2: and what kind of trout are you stocking?
5: Uh, all three species: we're stocking rainbow trout, brown trout, and brook trout. Um, mm-hmm. It's a mixture. Um, that's typical for our hatchery-supported uh, trout program in North Carolina. In
2: typical for most places. Those three. Species. Yeah. One yeah. of
5: the interesting things, and this doesn't really apply to, 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 to hat, or the or to the impoundments. This program, because um, we don't. These fish wouldn't reproduce, but um, because of genetic concerns and some of the things we talked about introducing fish and in that all of our trout that we stock are triploid, they're sterile. So, mm. so even in our hatchery supported streams, those fish aren't able to reproduce.
2: Oh, that's interesting.
5: Yep. Yep. Seal so-
2: sealed up just in case.
5: Yep, yep. Because we in North Carolina, um, and I, I could get my colleague Jake Rash, who's our trout biologist on trout coordinator, on here, and he could talk to you for two hours about it. But I'm sure he but, could. But, but our, um, but our trout, you know, the the, the brook trout, the Southern Appalachian brook trout, is our only native salmonid in the state, and so there's a lot of concerns about protecting and and even going back and trying to uh, reestablish some of those populations where we can, and so we're kind of he- hesitant now to put you know, trout they could reproduce in those systems, particularly when rainbow and brown because they're not s- supposed to, to, to occur here naturally. And then-
2: Well, no, your rainbows are from California and your browns are German. So <laughs> they have no business right. there, yeah.
5: <laughs> right, but but yeah. they do provide a really good fishing opportunity. And That's especially fun. like a, since we've got, you know, the ability now to make them sterile, it's, it's a it's a win-win. And so, but in our impoundments in the, the wintertime, um, we're stocking, I think I just saw today, 38 impoundments. And about sixty thousand fish are going to go out over the next month, and um, and so that's like I said, there's other states doing that. So if you're and in do, one of those,
2: do people in North Carolina have access to the data? They know where you're where you're stocking.
5: Yes, that is on our website. We put a press release out uh, typically about three weeks out. Um, uh, but I can out you mean after you stock or before? No, before, really? before. In oh, so fact, we,
2: it's so funny because New Hampshire they announced the stocking numbers three weeks after it's happened.
5: Yeah, so on this one, we it's a little different, and I guess I need to explain. Uh, normally, on our hatchery supported uh, streams that get stocked, we don't pre-announce. What we do is typically every Friday it's updated for that past week, so um, anglers have an idea of what was stocked that previous week, and we do that so that if folks are trying to plan their weekend out and they're looking at where they might want to go they can see some streams that were recently stocked and maybe shape their trip that way Um, yeah
2: and you know it's it's a good you know people buying their fishing licenses spending money fishing gear it's all really good for the state so
5: oh it's good for it's good for uh, yeah it definitely is i mean it's what you know pays our salary is is you know the licenses and then the excise taxes that are collected and again that that could be a whole other show um but but we definitely um appreciate anglers you know spending their money because it does support a lot of things that again maybe they don't even know sometimes they're supporting so oh,
2: well that's amazing and that is fish in the news i'm gonna push this button here now news
5: news fish in the news <laughs>
2: Well, Lawrence, you've done it. You've made fish in the news. You were a guest in the Fish Nerds podcast. Any parting thoughts?
5: Oh, I'd just like to say thanks for the opportunity to be on here. Um, sure. As I mentioned, mentioned to you earlier, we uh, you know we're all the time looking to connect with anglers. Um, you, you have my contact information. Feel free sure to do. share that and uh, feel free to use it. And so um, can if, I keep
2: if, you? Can I keep you on deck so if I get a fishery <laughs> question, I can call you up and yeah. get answers.
5: Sure, yeah. And if I can't answer it, or if I know somebody that I think's got a better uh base for answering the question i can refer you to them so no, I, don't I don't mind want, doing that.
2: I, I don't like them i like you
5: <laughs> okay okay <laughs> well, well i can uh, i can get the answer for you from all them right, and I then give it right, back to you
2: yeah jerks all right so <laughs> awesome well thank you so much for being guest tonight on the show thank you Lawrence. we appreciate your time and thanks for coming on the podcast and now I want to really thank the people who make the podcast possible. We could not, literally could not make the show without our Patreon supporters. If you want to give some money to the show, we really could use it. Patreon.com slash fishnerds to make a donation. And anyone who donates at the $5 a month level will be entered into a monthly drawing for a Fish Nerds prize package. I know I owe the November winner the prize still, so send me an email. Remind me, I'll send it out to you. But today's prize is going to be a fishnerds Nerds hat uh, and a book and a package of glass water lead-free lures from our friend the Crappy Hippie. You can go to crappyhippy.com to buy your own set of lures. But we love fishing lead-free, and we're so happy to do that. So we'll get that out. And the winner is Bethany Metz. So I'll make sure she gets her prize. And we're going to read everyone's name here now because I do that once in a while. So let me thank you by name. Chuck Hobble, thank you so much for the donation. Darren Radcliffe, thank you. Nathan Otto, you're a hero, James Paul M. I don't have a last name there. <laughs> thank you, Brian Barber, the Knitting Daddy himself, Greg Cahoon is here. Luke Ovgard, thank you, Kevin Jones, Gregory Sitzman, thank you both of you. Kate, with no last name, you're a hero. She makes a podcast. I W B. Oh, Kate, Internet uh, 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 ignorance is Bliss Podcast. Thank you, Kate. Uh, Dave Williamson, thank you. Manga Bay, the news site, gives us money and we appreciate them. Tim Beat, of course, true hero here. Joe Pardo, super Joe Pardo, we thank you. Matt Philippi thanks. Olaf Nelson, true hero. Chandler, oh, I don't have a last name on here. Why does it not show me? Last name's a funny program. Chandler Dobson, thank you so much. Cody Fondy, thank you. Christopher Christopher Englert, thank you. Mark Pieper, haven't talked to you in a long time, Mark. Thank you. Mike O'Keefe, Nicholas Craig, thank you, guys. Chad O'Leary, Mike Steffen himself, Alan Byrne, thank you. Renegade Clock, which is a podcast. Courtney D, with no last name, thank you so much, Courtney D, for your donation. We have Anthony DiPolito, thanks. The Jock and Nerd Podcast gives us a dollar a month. Jonathan Sutter, thanks. Like in Rancourt, you're a hero. Bethany Metz, who won this month, thank you. Sean Bradbury, Ed Hinn, thank you guys. Rich Collins, our fly fishing correspondent. Andrew Lewin, thank you. From the Speak Up for Blue podcast, Kevin Kupczyk. Josh Lopes at LopesTax.com pays us $25 a month. Reed Sutter makes music for us. We'd like Reed. Fish Guy Josh, Big Buck Registry podcast gives us money. David Redden, D. Redden. Uh, Ray Layton from England. Lindsay Freeman. Jeff Danielson, our effing librarian, and Ryan, all of you, thank you so much for your donation. It makes a big, big difference. And it literally is the only reason we have a podcast. We could not afford to make the show. I don't have a lot of sponsors. I don't make a lot of effort for sponsors. I should. I may in 2021, but currently I'm not, I don't get excited about calling people and asking for money. So we appreciate you. So that's it. You've listened to a bunch of fish nerds when you should have been fishing. Big special thanks to Zoe. Thank you, Zoe. Thanks, Tim Beat and Grace. You guys are true heroes. We thank you for your uh, submission there. Uh, Lawrence, Lawrence Dorsey, thanks for coming on the podcast. And, of course, thank you, for everyone, for listening. Have a great, happy, safe New Year, Fish Nerd Nation. We really appreciate you. Until next time, follow the code of the Fish Nerd. Spawn early and often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached. And swim against the current every chance you get. <laughs>
1: We've got lots of followers and we're loved everywhere we go We talk about fishing and we talk about lures Get cash for videos We have mad fishing skills that give us all kinds of thrills But the thrill we've never known to be broadcast on the fish podcast be interviewed by clay grove by clay grove wanna hear my voice on the podcast then i'd no longer be an outcast wanna hear my smiling voice be